0: Well, just to give a background for the um, asking this question and giving this paper, um, almost five years ago, uh, five years ago, our jointly written book um, entitled "Is History Fiction" appeared, which explored the ways in which historians have understood questions of truth and fiction in relation to their own practice. Prompted in part by debates over postmodernism in the 90s and by what have come to be called the Australian History Wars in the 2000s concerning the violence of colonisation, we set out to see these conflicts in a longer perspective. The book actually begins with Herodotus and Thucydides, then jumps to the 1820s to consider the influence of scientific ideals associated with the name of Leopold von Ranke, and then traces debates over history, fiction, narrative, imagination and science ever since. And our argument in the book in brief is that history has a double character, partaking both of the world of literature and of rigorous scholarly practice in relation to historical sources. And this double character makes questions of truth and fiction in history open to perennial debate and disagreement, posing questions for the discipline that are never truly resolved. It is also, however, what makes history so, we think, exciting and engaging and widely read. Now, late last year, our publisher at the University of New South Wales Press asked us to provide a new chapter for a revised edition and that new chapter provides the basis for the paper today though we also discuss some work that has appeared or that we've become aware of um, since we wrote that chapter. In this paper, we seek to apply our interest in history's double character to a consideration of histories on a grand scale transnational, imperial, global, world history grand histories are of course nothing new indeed they are where the western historical tradition began the desire to encompass the history of humanity as a whole reminds us of course of Herodotus and Thucydides yet the fortunes of grand histories have risen and fallen over time right now and I think this um, seminar is um, one of the sort of testaments to this, that grand histories are becoming ever more popular um, as in the forms of world history, global history, imperial history and much else. Now while there are many reasons I think for the move to large-scale history including a response to the interest in globalisation in a range of disciplines one of them is the feeling that now in the 21st century humanity is at a crossroads as the evidence for human-generated climate change and its potentially dire consequences strengthens, we confront the very real possibility that continuing on a wrong path might lead to disaster for humanity and the planet. And spurred on by this sense of crisis, I think, historians and their readers have become increasingly interested in histories of humanity as a species and our interactions with other species and the planet as a whole. Dipesh Chakrabarti, for example, reflected on the issues in his essay The Climate of History Four Theses in Critical Inquiry in 2009 and earlier this year a collection edited by Mark Levine, Rob Johnson and Penny Roberts entitled History at the End of the World? Question mark, history, Climate Change and the Possibility of Closure put the practice of history under sustained scrutiny in the light of the climate change issue and we return to the Levine collection later in the paper Now these desires for history on a grand scale then have brought with them particular concerns when we consider questions of truth and fiction. They're not so much new concerns as old ones felt with a new urgency. One of these concerns arises from the fact that historians, like other scholars, necessarily rely on one another's work in a spirit of collective creativity, producing a surplus that no individual historian alone can achieve. In world history, the necessity to synthesise is even greater than in other fields. And so the question arises, how can histories that rely so extensively on secondary sources maintain scholarly rigour? The rise of world history leads us also to ask whether it is possible when writing histories of humanity as a whole to retain a keen awareness of human difference and of one's own particular speaking position, and if so, how? So our aim today in dealing with these questions is not to attempt a panoramic panoramic assessment of the strengths and weaknesses of grand histories but rather to explore the methodological and theoretical issues that they raise. So our focus is not so much on world history itself as on those texts in which world historians reflect on their own practice and on these kinds of issues. Okay, my next section is called the idea of world history and I'm going to be talking about Arnold Toynbee. Now, in the Anglophone world outside the United States, university courses in world history were uncommon right up until the 1990s and are by no means universal even today. I couldn't find one listed on the Oxford website, but I had trouble with the website, so if there is one, tell me. Um, but I've been looking at various websites and um, there isn't one at the University of Sydney either, where we teach. But though other Australian universities do teach courses in world history or many, you know, about half of them I suppose many historians have treated the whole project of world history with disdain and some still do one reason at least in terms of my personal histor- historical education is that they identified it with the work of Arnold J Toynbee generally regarded as having failed in his aspirations for a universal history this is what I remember being told this in honours class Toynbee was originally a specialist on ancient Greece who set out to write a world history in the wide-ranging mode of Herodotus and as his ideas progressed, also in the tragic mode of Thucydides. His ten-volume work, The Study of History, was a massive project taking over a quarter of a century to produce the first three volumes appearing in 1934, the next three in 1939 and the final four in 1954. The smallest intelligible unit of study, he thought, was not the nation or something smaller, but a civilization as a whole. And the history of civilizations follows, in his general account, a common pattern. They arise in response to a challenge, thrive and grow, and then break down for a variety of reasons, including militarism and the deterioration of its quote, quote, creative minority, followed by a long period of disintegration. And Toynbee's work impressed even those who criticised it for its depth and breadth of scholarship. Toynbee's philosophy of world history prefigures, I think, much contemporary discussion um, of the kind um, that I'm sure you've been having in these seminars. He emphasises the importance of a particular standpoint, strongly influenced by nationality, class and the time of writing. Um, He says, God alone knows the true picture Um, He said this in 1947, our individual human aposue are shots in the dark. So he's got quite a relativist um, position. While emphasising common patterns of rise and decline, he was not a determinist and wrote, we are not doomed to make history repeat itself. He was constantly critical of nationalism and national history. You cannot understand the history of England if you begin only at the coming of the English to Britain. The smallest unit one can take into account is the whole of Western Christendom. And again, he says, historians must make the necessary effort of imagination and effort of will to break our way out of the prison walls of the local. We must accustom ourselves to taking a synoptic view of history as a whole. So for Toynbee, history as a whole meant doing two things, studying encounters between civilizations and comparing civilizations. And his work is much more, I think, about the second. In modern terms, I think, he was advocating both transnational and comparative history. His writing is constantly foregrounding the work of the historian who hypothesises, compares, personifies, key actors and borrows ideas from other disciplines. His very title, The Study of History, suggests a highly interpretive and anti-empiricist approach. Now, the volumes of the study of history were in their time hugely popular and well-received, the abridged version of the first six volumes even more so when it appeared in 1947, and I think it's that abridged version that has tended to survive. Yet criticisms began to mount in the late 1940s and early 1950s, and some helped to form the basis of the later orthodoxy in professional history circles that Toynbee's project was a failure, perhaps a grandiose failure, but a failure nevertheless. Historians rejected the cyclical patterns that Toynbee saw in history and many, like Peter Gale, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, were unimpressed by his hostility to nationalism. Richard Pares and many others accused him of imposing a preconceived pattern on his material. But most damaging of all to his reputation were the criticisms from well-known conservative historian Hugh Trevor Roper. When the final four volumes appeared in 1954, Trevor Roper wrote in a review, Not only are Professor Toynbee's basic assumptions often questionable and his application of them often arbitrary, but his technical method turns out to be not empirical at all. The theories are not deduced from the facts nor tested by them. The facts are selected, sometimes adjusted, to illustrate the theories, which themselves rest effortlessly on air. So Trevor Roper's um, empiricist assumption that the facts of history could be ascertained independently of any intellectual framework at all might seem curious but attacks such as this helped turn many historians in the english-speaking world against Toynbee's work in particular and the idea of universal or world history in general now there are other attempts at world history in the post-war period and they also ran into serious trouble and led many historians to think the whole enterprise was misguided or impossible in 1947 the the new United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation, UNESCO, voted to produce a scientific, imagine this in capitals, Scientific and Cultural History of Mankind, which would document the history of the progress of scientific and other knowledge as part of the development of a peaceful world in the post-war period. It was very much a peace and anti-war project. A trilingual journal, the Journal of World History, Was established in 1953 to support the project and lasted till 1972 and the volumes of the history took much longer to produce than planned as editors attempted to respond to innumerable contradictory object objections to draft chapters in the view of historians of science and the environment Libby Robin and Will Steffen the publications from this project were not really world history at all lacking integration and dominated by European and North American authors and perspectives. Not only was the plan for an international history of peace undermined by Cold War nationalist politics, but also history by committee, which this project became, was deeply compromised, lacking any overall interpretation. The situation in the United States, however, was distinctive in that the idea of world history, though battered, managed to survive much, much better. Than in the rest of the Anglophone world. There, teaching of world history courses had become popular from the 1960s, often replacing older courses known as Western civilizations, which had been based on the idea of European history as a history of liberty. And those teaching world history wrote significant world history texts, the most admired and long-lasting of which, a staple for many a world history course since its first appearance in 1963, was William McNeill's book, The Rise of the West, a history of the human community Toynbee's influence lived on through McNeil's work there's a very direct um, um, passing on of ideas McNeill has eloquently described the impact on his thinking of reading Toynbee as a graduate student in 1939 Toynbee's The Study of History, McNeil thought quote, opened new vistas previously beyond my ken civilizations I had never considered before became so to speak, visible for the first time. And he realised that I too, like Toynbee, would have to think about humanity as a whole and explore the histories of peoples and places totally unknown to me. Writing about the experience 47 years later, McNeil reflects that perhaps Toynbee had such an impact because of the times. The Second World War had just broken out and the study of history seemed to provide a pattern to the chaos of life in the late 1930s to suggest that human existence could be made intelligible after all. And as the world drifted towards war, Toynbee's view of civilizations, McNeil thought, conformed to the structure of Greek tragedy. After the war, in April 1947, McNeill actually met the great man himself and a few years later, from 1950 to 1952, he worked in London with Toynbee writing a volume in the Survey of International Relations of which Toynbee was the general editor. Now, on his return to the United States, McNeill began writing what was to become The Rise of the West, finishing it 10 years later in 1963. <clears throat> McNeill's work, however, was somewhat different from Toynbee's. Where Toynbee had focused largely on civilizations, McNeill focused very much on their interactions, emphasizing cultural borrowing as a major feature of world history. So, The Rise of the West begins with the era of Middle Eastern dominance to 500 BC moves on to the period of what it terms Eurasian cultural balance, 500 to 1500 AD, and ends with the era of Western dominance, 1500 AD to the present. 25 years later, in an autocritical retrospective, McNeill criticised his earlier work for, among other things, quote, its residual Eurocentrism, and especially its lack of understanding of the primacy of China between AD 1000 and 1500. As the number of world history courses and world history specialists rose in the 1980s, um, this is particularly in the United States, McNeil's 1986 essay, Myth, History, or Truth, Myth, History and Historians, outlines some key issues concerning truth and method in the field. And I think this essay is quite a kind of manifesto in many ways for the idea of world history. Lack of agreement about fundamentals across cultures and world views, he pointed out, makes the pursuit of truth difficult. He quote, we must reckon with multiplex competing faiths, secular as well as transcendental, revolutionary as well as traditional, that resound among us. Choice is everywhere. Dissent turns into cacophonous confusion. My truth dissolves into your myth, even before I can put words on paper. While all groups need a cohesive and reaffirming version of their history, McNeil felt, the resulting myths can distort a people's image of outsiders and this kind of in-group myth-making, he warns, has become a dangerous game in the Atomic Age. McNeil's sense here of the threat to the world posed by nuclear weapons and world war reminds us that the early 20th century crisis occasioned by global warming is but one in a series of crises and catastrophes including the Holocaust that have influenced and inspired historiography to rethink itself in fundamental ways. This is a point I think made forcefully by Mark Levine in the introduction to the collection History at the End of the World, referred to earlier. Premonitions of an end to the human are in themselves nothing new, he says. Both nuclear weapons and anthropogenic climate change, he argues, are the two strongest as well as closely interrelated contenders for pushing humanity to the brink. Anyway, back to McNeil, who advocates an intelligible world history which might be expected to diminish the lethality of group encounters by cultivating a sense of individual identification with the triumphs and tribulations of humanity as a whole. Such history which he describes as ecumenical history with plenty of room for human diversity in all its complexity he sees as a moral duty. He proposes it not as an alternative to national and group history which still have their place but as a necessary component of historical knowledge and awareness. To McNeil's dismay in this 1986 essay, he feels that a broad history of humanity has low priority with most historians. The structure of academic life rewards specialists, not generalists, with with successful academic careers, and I think most of us would agree that that is true. Historians often regard world history as too vague and too general to be true, that is, accurate to the sources. To this charge, McNeill has a firm reply. His historiography, he writes, that aspires to get closer and closer to the documents, all the documents and nothing but the documents, is merely moving closer and closer to incoherence, chaos and meaningless. Furthermore, he, um, he says, all truths are general, all truths, quote, abstract from the available assortment of data. Well, history, therefore, is not different in principle from any other. We already know that, quote, truths may be discerned at different levels of generality with equal precision simply because different patterns emerge on different time-space scales. In other words, in, quote, in other words, if the historian is always looking for patterns to make the past understandable, the time-space scale he or she chooses will lead to particular levels of generalisation, none more or less reliable or truth-yielding than any other. McNeil's insightful defence of the desire to write histories on a grand scale presaged a rapid rise in the practice and academic respectability of world history though the latter always remained under suspicion from those anxious to defend history's reputation for rigorous scholarship. And now I'll hand over to John.
1: OK. Thanks, Sam. Well, this section is called uh, world, uh, world Systems History. As interest in histories on a grand scale grew in popularity, world history went in a largely economic direction under the influence of the work of Immanuel Wallerstein and his three-volume work, The Modern World System, that was 1947, sorry, 1974 to to 1988. Wallerstein posited the development of a new capitalist world economic system in the 16th century, a system that was marked by constant change. Wallerstein's idea of world systems came to have a major influence on the field. andre Gunder Frank urged in an influential essay that the idea of world systems could provide world history with a clear conceptual foundation. One of the most important of the world systems historians is Janet Abri-Lugot, author of Before European Hegemony, The World System, A.D. 1250-1350, published in, in 1989. In a very re- reflective 1995 essay, the world system perspective and the construction of economic history, Abu Lugard relates the significance of living and researching in the Middle East for her thinking about world history. In particular, her anti-Eurocentric view that there had been influence in, that there had been world systems long before the 16th century. Key personal events included following her then husband, to Caro, in 1958. And she wrote a very well-known book about um, Cairo as a kind of eternal city. In Before European Hegemony, Abu Lugot opposes and provides an alternative to internal interpretations of the development of Europe. In medieval times, Abu Lugot observes, Europe globalised its economy precisely by joining already existing global economies constituted in a vibrant trading world that stretched from Moorish Spain in the west to China in the east. He was a world system that had many overlapping centres, dominated by neither the Middle East nor India nor China. In Abu Lugod's view, Europe came late to the international networks of trade and exchange already long established in the, in the Islamic world. And for a lengthy period, it was but a minor player at a relatively primitive level of de- development, but a player that had had everything to gain from the association. Profiting from what had already long existed, Europe would by the 16th century gain world hegemony in trade, commerce and industry. Europe, Avril Lugot reflects, reshaped the pre-existing multi-centred world economy to its own ends, creating the conditions for its own domination. In her 1995 essay, Avril Lugot ponders her own world history approach and methodology. She addresses the troubling issue of reliance on secondary sources. Historians, she acknowledges, necessarily participate in the collective scholarship of others, yet they must also move to disengage from that collective effort. Otherwise, historical knowledge will become merely repetitive and inert. What Abu Lugod terms significant historical narrative entails a number of qualities. It will include a private vision, an element that is extremely personal, and it will involve synthetic imagination or vision. Abu Lugod finds that she increasingly wonders about how historians and social scientists arrive at such visions. She realises in her own case that in constructing syntheses she comes to trust certain historians more than others, finding in their work further guidance and additional bibliography. She, tr- she trusts historians according to their degree of mastery over known sources and how much they cover variables that she believes are important. Historians, Abu Lugod suggests, should engage in what the philosopher Hans Gadamer in his stupid Method refers to as a capacity for reflexivity and self-conscious awareness especially as an antidote to hubris to believing one has arrived at the certainty of a complete explanation. In general methodological terms, Abu Lugot disputes the relevance to good historical and social science work of scientific ideals, of objectivity, value-free inquiry and the notion of a reproducible finding. On the contrary, she values a kind of personal vision that leads to finding a particular pattern in history. She has three key words, eccentricity, ideology and idiosyncrasy. We need, we need she says, eccentricity to combat ethnocentricity in one's explanations. For example, in studying the 13th century world system in Before European Hegemony, she tried wherever possible to pair evocations of the Crusades by Muslim and Christian writers. Quote, I was trying to decenter accounts, to view them eccentrically. Historians should also seek to be self reflexive about ideology, not naively deduce historical reality from the deep sets of beliefs about how the world works in one's own culture one should seek to become aware of competing deep beliefs about the world. By idiosyncrasy, Abu Lugod means the personal voice of the historian, which is essential for, a new, for any new interpretation. OK, this section is called World Cultural, cultural History. Um, sometimes the field of world history is criticised for being overly economic in emphasis, unable to take advantage of the rapid growth and cultural history of recent decades. Yet this is not altogether true. In the late 20th century, for example, a form of world cultural history emerged which focused on the revival of cultural memory of the medieval Islamic world. This is the world that Abu Lugod refers to in political economy terms. A Levantine, North African and Moorish-Spanish world where many communities, Muslim, Jewish and Christian, lived together. Alongside Abu Lugod's before European hegemony there is Amiel Al-Khalay's 1993 book After Jews and Arabs, Remaking Levantine Culture, which evokes a Levantine world stretching in time from the medieval to the modern, characterised by cultural mixing, relative freedom of travel and multilingualism. Addressing a prominent theme of Jewish history, Alkali writes that for more than a thousand years, Jews, like Christians, protected peoples of the book, did not live in ghettos shared their lives with their Arab neighbours in intimate, intricate ways, enjoyed religious and cultural autonomy, and prospered in multiple occupations as artisanal workers, scholars, medical professionals, professionals, traders, and administrators. Then, in 2002, Maria Rosa menor book, The Ornament of the World, appeared, subtitled How Muslims, Jews, and Christians Created a Culture of Tolerance in Medieval Spain, it points to the long and remarkable history from the 8th to the 15th centuries of Andalusia as a multi-religious and multi-ethnic part of Europe. In her evocation, the brilliance of Islamic Spain, in the pride of its power and even its fragma- fragmentation and dissolution, profoundly influenced and continues to influence Europe and world history in terms of sensibility, poetry, narrative, science, astronomy, mathematics, historiography, translation, religious mysticism, architecture, and philosophy. And this section is called hunter Gatherer versus Agricultural Societies. In the 1990s, Jared Diamond developed a quite different form of world history, one that owed a great deal to popular science, and his work came to be one of the best known of all. A physiologist by training and an expert ornithologist. ornithologist of New Guinea's rich bird life, Diamond began writing books of world history in his 50s. His most well-known books are The Rise and Fall of the Third Chimpanzee, that's 1991, Guns, Germs and Steel in 1997, and Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed in 2005. Diamond draws on his knowledge of the evolutionary behaviour of various species to speculate on the character of humanity and its impact on the natural world since its emergence in the mists of time. Its achievements and failures as a species, and the threat, and the threat in its very evolutionary success that it poses to itself, to other species, and to the planet. In the rise and fall of the third chimpanzee, with its pessimistic title concerning the trajectory of humanity as a species, Diamond questions the conventional progressivist view that situates agriculture from its origins in the Near East around 8,000 BC as a sacred milestone in humanity's march towards civilisation. On the contrary, he says, we should return a mixed report card on the introduction of agricultural society into history, noting some gains and many losses for humanity. Not least of the losses are the introduction of what he refers to as crowd epidemics like cholera, measles, tuberculosis, leprosy, smallpox and bubonic plague. Diseases that could not survive and persist in small, scattered bands of hunters and gatherers, who often shifted camp, but could thrive in sedentary living and cities. The new method of food production broke with the patterns of egalitarianism that generally characterized hunter-gatherer societies, since the appropriation and control of stored food led to class divisions. The specialization afforded by agricultural societies also introduced standing armies of professional killers. At the end of the ice age, the choice by some hunter-gatherer groups to adopt agriculture led to a new global force for destruction. Hunter-gatherers were forced out of all areas of, wo- of the world that farmers wanted, and persist not only in the Ar- now persist now only in the Arctic deserts and some rainforests. In Diamond's enormously popular next book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, he opposes racial explanations for human behavior. Against the idea that some peoples developed agricultural society uh, while others did not because of the greater intelligence and adaptability of the former, Diamond argues that the development of agriculture is only possible when domesticable plants and animals are available. In many parts of the world, such as Australia or sub-Saharan Africa, there were no or few domesticable animals. So one of the foundations of agricultural society was missing. By contrast, the vast landmass he refers to as Eurasia, is favoured by having most of the domesticable animals and plants on the planet. Diamond's work reminds us that the continuing rise of Indigenous history, alongside the increased political visibility of Indigenous peoples around the world, has had major implications for the practice of world history. One of the major figures in making these connections is Hugh Brody. An anthropologist, writer and documentary filmmaker who has lived for years with communities in Canada researching land claims and indigenous rights. In the other side of Eden, Hunter Gatherers, Farmers and the Shaping of the World, he published in, in two thousand, Verody seeks to pass on to readers quote, what hunter gatherers can teach us not only about their own particular human genius, but also human history. There are lessons to be learned from the hunter-gatherer world that go to the core of who we are as human beings. He intends his book to be a search for what it has meant and can mean to be a human being. Like Diamond, Brodie puts the, the coming of agricultural society under severe examination. In world history terms, Brodie asks, who are the nomads, farmers or hunter-gatherers? And then I'll quote a passage here from, from Brodie. A crucial difference, he says, between hunter-gatherers and farmers is that one society is highly mobile, with a strong tendency to, be, to both small and large-scale nomadism, whereas the other is highly settled, tending to stay firmly in one particular area or territory. This difference is established in stereotypes of nomadic hunters and settled and settled farmers. However, a stereotype has it the wrong way round. It is agricultural societies that tend to be on the move. Hunting hunting peoples are far more firmly settled. This fact is evident when we look at these two ways of being in the world over a long time. End of quote. Baroni is suggesting that a major force of genocide, violence, destruction and cultural loss in world history is the relentless movement of agricultural pastoral societies, so recently in their appearance, into the areas of the world where hunter-gatherer groups have lived for many thousands of years. Consciousness of belonging and attachment to place is a powerful theme as well of Australian Indigenous historical practice. The Indigenous academic and public intellectual Marcia Langton, in her 1998 book Burning Questions, probes conventional Western attitudes, including scientific attitudes to hunter-gatherer peoples in relation to ecology and the environment. Like Brodie, Langton wishes to question Western agricultural, agriculturalist myths of evolutionary ascendancy. Her focus is on tropical northern Australia, where, she points out, relatively unscathed by white colonisation compared to the rest of the continent, there has been a continuous hunter-gatherer presence for tens of thousands of years. Traditional principles in dealing with other species and their habitats, principles of caution, of forethought, collaboration and planning, are, she says, still in evidence. The Aboriginal concept of spiritual stewardship of the natural environment maintains other life forms in a web of relatedness. Aboriginal people themselves strongly reject the classification of their land as wilderness. The Jayroin people, after their successful land claim in 1985, expressed their cultural values in relation to the Nitmiluk land. And this is a quote from from, uh, the Nitmiluk people. Nitmiluk is not wilderness. It is not pristine or untamed. It is a human artefact. It is a land constructed by us over tens of thousands of years through our ceremonies and ties of kinship, through fire and through hunting over countless generations of our people, the Jaywines. End of quote. It is time, Marcia Langton feels, that we recognise the value and profundity of our Aboriginal knowledge and practice arising from their uninterrupted human stewardship of their land at least since the Holocene. A sense of environmental crisis means that more people are saying to look to pre-industrial and pre-agricultural societies for clues as how to live less destructively in the world. Mark Levine in his introduction to History at the End of the World, for example, writes, quote, that the vast majority of our ancestors live without fossil fuels. We need to understand how they did it, end of quote. No okay, and all. then
0: I'll, um, I'll resume. Um, I want to talk a bit about the whole question of world history and the problem of West, Western centrism. Debates over globalisation have strongly influenced the development of world history, so much so that many now speak of global history. When the new Journal of Global History was established in 2006, it was careful to distinguish itself from Western-centric views of global history. Um, and in doing so, it followed a very long tradition, I think, in world history of attempting to Escape a Western centric view. Yet despite such efforts and emphases, world history as an enterprise has been and continues to be criticised for its Eurocentrism and its perhaps unconscious assumption of Western intellectual hegemony. In 2005, R.F. Derlich was critical of the naive political and ideological hopes invested in world histories, motivated most recently by visions of a global multiculturalism. He is a supporter of the idea that a global vision is necessary in historical analysis, but he's critical of much of world history's practice. He favours an approach he describes as world history as totality, most clearly represented in Marxist inspired world system analysis, but goes further than the world system's approach by deconstructing and historicising the notions of nation and civilisation. And this approach he describes as translocal, and that's been quite an influential. Um, idea. Later in the essay, he admires the trend to transnational history as it emphasizes processes over settled units. Derlich advocates that historians reconceive nations and civilizations not as homogeneous units but as historical ecumenes. Um, and the notion of ecumen is quite a common one in world history. Ecumenes being understood as areas of intense and sustained cultural inter- interaction. The metaphor of ecumen, he thinks be valuable allowing its different parts to interact in independently with parts of other ecumenes we should not interpret the local that is to say in terms of one ecumene alone echoing janet abu comments 10 years earlier and in direct contrast to a very well-known statement by Lefton stavrianos in 1964 that uh, historians should aim to have a view from the moon they should see the um, world history um, from the point of view of the moon, Derlich reminds world historians that they need to remain attentive to their specific and limited standpoints and speaking positions, regardless of how global or universalistic we may wish to be. As a result, he says, world history can be written ultimately only as historiography, as an account not just of different conceptualisations of the world, but also of different ways of conceiving the past. One way in which world histories run counter to a simple Western expansion narrative is an interest in oceanic histories where Europe and non-Europe interact in complex ways. I think we're all familiar with the huge expansion in Atlantic World Scholarship and more recently interest in Pacific and Indian Ocean worlds um, has grown as well. Isabel Hoffmeyer in an article entitled The Black Atlantic Meets the Indian Ocean Forging New Paradigms of Transnationalism for the Global South literary and cultural perspectives, very long title Hoffmeyer synthesizes a great deal of recent historical scholarship she notes for example some of the ways in which Indian Ocean trading networks including slave trades differed from their Atlantic counterparts Islam provided the dominant idiom of public life in most coastal cities and the Indian Ocean slave trade quote was largely female not male it involved predominantly household slaves rather than plantation workers the boundaries between slave and free were much more blurred and the association of race and slavery did not exist in any marked form. Indentured labourers could become settlers, blurring another distinction that was much sharper in Atlantic contexts. And so she's, um, I think she's a very interesting example of, of this whole trend to um, oceans or spheres um, in, within world history. The last um, form of world history I want to talk about is environmental history. The desire to bring the sciences and history close together is evident in the growing field of environmental world history. Arnold Toynbee himself came late in his life to value the ecological dimensions of history, and his book, Mankind and Mother Earth, A Narrative History of the World, was published posthumously in 1976. He'd come upon the idea, however, too late in his own life to pursue it very thoroughly, and it was up to others, I think, to develop the field. Given their close association with the natural sciences, environmental historians have become interested in questions of historical truth and representation and the nature and status of their own knowledge. The American environmental historian William Cronin ponders in a 1992 article A place for stories, nature, history and narrative, which is much quoted in the environmental history world. The implications of narrative theory for environmental history. Environmental historians, he explains, work closely with natural and social scientists and yet also strive to retain their commitment to narrative. Quote, when we describe human activities within an ecosystem, we seem always to tell stories about them. Sounding very much like Hayden White, I think he continues, when we choose a plot to order our environmental histories, we give them a unity that neither nature nor the past possesses so clearly. Environmental histories, he says, can be tales of progress or destruction, mastery over or defeat by or transformation of nature. And he concludes by asking, on the grandest scale, what is the mutual fate of humanity and the earth? And we alluded to this at the very beginning of this paper. Since 1992, the sense of environmental crisis has grown... When he wrote that essay, I think, yep. The sense of environmental crisis has grown so that environmental histories have become increasingly narratives of destruction and danger. Australian environmental historian Tom Griffiths points to environmental history's contemporary sense of crisis about the human ecological predicament. And Griffiths also notes the fit between world and environmental history, since environmental history frequently makes more sense on a regional or global scale than it does on a national one. The best known example of this mood in environmental history we've already mentioned Jared Diamond's 2005 book Collapse How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed and that book is a study of how and why some societies collapse and others do not with special attention to environmental factors and it ranges widely from Easter Island to Haiti, from Iceland to Australia. Now sharing Diamond's concerns but working in a very different mode is a collaborative project launched in 2005, called the Integrated History and Future of Peoples of People on Earth, the IHOPE Project. Under the auspices of the International Council of Scientific Unions, an international group of scientists directly concerned with the effects of human-induced climate change is seeking to map biophysical and human system change over the last 100,000 years. And the first major publication of the project, a large multi-authored collection of essays, edited by Robert Constanza called Sustainability or Collapse, appeared in 2007. And one of the contributors to the project is Paul Crutzen, the scientist who in 2000 coined the term Anthropocene to describe the epoch we have now entered in which humans are changing the climate. While there's room for argument as to when the Anthropocene began and the Holocene ended, Kurtzen nominates the invention of the steam engine in 1784, which led to the rapid growth of carbon dioxide and methane concentrations in the late 18th century. And the idea of Anthropocene has attracted attention and strengthened desires for an integration of biophysical and human history. For Libby, Robin and Will Steffen in their fascinating article, History for the Anthropocene, the lesson to be drawn from the failure of the post-war UNESCO World Historical Project that we referred to earlier, is that any history of humanity needs to be reflexive and transparent about why we need such a history and open-minded about who we are like many of the historians we've surveyed surveyed, they see this kind of history as morally necessary as being in the service of human cooperation in the interests of the planet global change they urge demands loyalty not to country but to earth and history they conclude has never been more important in a similar vein Mark Levine writes that this is not the time to estu- eschew the past, but to recognise its great gift to us, the gift of human agency. We can be passive spectators at the self-inflicted demise of our species or we can be, like the great social movements of history, true visionaries who through our own actions may yet heal the world. So these historians of um, very high moral seriousness. So to conclude, is a history of humanity possible? We think the answer must be yes, but it will be, like any history, from a particular perspective. The enormous debts the world historian owes to other scholars, not only in history, but also in the other humanities and the social and natural sciences, need not blind us to what is distinctive in the historical enterprise. More than any other historical genre, perhaps, histories on a grand scale, paradoxically involve personal vision, recognition of cultural standpoints, self reflexivity, narrative skill and strong intellectual frameworks.